You're listening to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Mastering Retention. Um, We are super blessed to have Sophie Vu with us here. Um, She heads up one of the studios in Berlin for Voodoo. Um, I believe it's your your casual studio there, right, Sophie? Yes, absolutely. Well, well thank you so much for being on. Uh, I've, I've heard a number of times that you've spoken and I, I feel so blessed to be able to have you on the show and get to talk to you myself. So uh, super excited for today's episode. Uh, before we dive into things though, I always like to ask, you know, what was your story? How did you get into games? Sure. Uh, so um, maybe for the quick uh, background intro, I've been working in games over a decade and uh, like probably many professionals in game these days, I didn't plan to get into games. I've always played games since I was a kid. Uh, didn't think of it as a career path. And uh, my background has been more in business and uh, consumer products. And uh, when I was looking for a job, um, I'm, I'm French, so I was looking for a job in France. Uh, it was difficult. I was more in marketing, uh, product marketing, and uh, coincidence luck. I uh, started actually first job at Gameloft as a producer, project manager. And uh, since then, stayed in games. Uh, also, part of the luck of this market is that mobile games became even bigger. And uh, that's mm-hmm. why I'm still here today. And uh, through <laughs> the journey, I, I joined over mobile game company. Free-to-play became really big and uh, still love being in games because of a mix of uh, business, creativity, and just games uh, that I think is very unique to the industry. Yeah, that's great. What what games are you playing right now? Uh, so I I actually, I'm looking for some games to play because, this, you know, we are all working from home. So my evenings are uh, consuming a lot of games. So recently <laughs> I finished uh, Last of Us 2. Uh, very good uh, game. I was really into it. I was uh, also uh, very scared by it, so I didn't expect it to be that uh, violent. I don't know if you played it, Last of Us 2. It's on my list to play, but I have not played it. I, I have a fear that my little three-year-old is going to come over my shoulder and get scared. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's pretty violent and gore, so probably not a good idea. <laughs> Um, and this day is Final Fantasy VII Remake. So I'm, I, I like to play uh, more console games on my free time as a contrast of what I actually play a lot during the day with uh, work that are a lot of mobile games, of, of course, our own games. Mm-hmm. So that's the mix of games I play. Yeah, that's great. Now, I've been hearing a lot of people are getting back into World of Warcraft with their recent Shadowlands release too. So that's kind of kind of fun to see. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I do love console games. I, I feel like I've been doing more switch games lately too, just because like, I I can play it up there, but I can also kind of be a little bit, you know, more mobile with it too, which just gives me a little bit more freedom to, to play too. Mm -hmm. So I really enjoy that. So that's great. So, uh, you know, something that I really wanted to spend a lot of time on today's call kind of going through is just kind of the process of building a new studio, building a team, how to, you know, pick the first game or games that you're like thinking about. So kind of for all those people that are maybe either on the track of starting a new studio to, you know, verify that they're doing the right things or, you know, for folks that are thinking, Hey, you know, it seems like there's a a really great opportunity out there right now. I've got some great ideas. I feel like I can do this. Um, You know, what are the processes for, for starting those things? So Maybe we can start here. You know, if if you were starting a new studio today, what do you think is the most important thing to do first? That was actually the question I had to ask myself when I started uh, at Voodoo more than a year ago, and I was actually really starting from zero, um, <laughs> opening a new branch of casual games uh, inside Voodoo, uh, which is more known for hyper-casual games, so it's also quite different from casual. And... Um, I was asking actually myself uh, the same question. Is that like, what is more important, the, the what? What kind of games uh, sh- uh, are we going to do? Uh, so should I have a clear vision of what the games specifically and hire uh, people uh, based on the games we want to do or the other way? 
And uh, that's uh, also what I, I wrote about in uh, one article is really in the end, I look at the market in a, in a certain time and uh, it, it can change for the years coming, the market is changing, I don't know where it is going. And my conclusion with uh, this, especially in the long term, uh, the people and the culture you want to build are, I think, the most important. Because in the end, I think people can learn, people can adapt skills. And uh, I know some skills that are new that you learn like the, from the last year. So a lot of uh, skills required are new and people can learn, but values, uh, motivation or where, why you are in this uh, industry, what you want to do, you know, as a professional, it's really hard to change. So I look really a lot into the people and the culture. And uh, tied to that, of course, there's still a question of what uh, do we do as a team in a studio? Um, but I like to think more as a, as a why. So why, what, what is our mission? What is uniting us here as a group of people on, on the games we want to do and why? And this is an important aspect because there will be hard moments in development where we will disagree, we will fight. Uh, it's a very uh, a passion of, um, a job of passion. And if we don't share the why we're here, then there will be a lot of uh, conflicts and separation at some points. So sharing the why, I think it's important at the start. And then, I don't know, today I, I think of for also our studio, we make okay, casual games in a certain direction, but maybe tomorrow we call it different hybrid, hybrid casual. I don't know where the market is going, you know. Oh. But we, we will adapt to this. I'm, I'm less worried about this part. Yeah. Can I ask, what is your studio's why? Sure. So our, um, how I define the why as well, when I took some time also off between uh, the job. So I was at Rovio and I had, I think, two, three months in transition before joining Voodoo, starting the new studio and journaling and spending a lot of time as well, um, more on my personal why before I, I frame the why for the studio. Like how how do I want to spend my time in the world? Basically, <laughs> I, I came at the crossroad of a career where I could go on for another job as a product lead, a producer, product manager, and and go on with a you know treadmill for a while, <laughs> or really ask myself how can I use my skills, my time, my energy, and things that I care about. And uh, there were a few things uh, that. Uh, became clear to me after years of experience and just uh, discovering what I liked the most through the jobs I had. And one was really in uh, building creative teams, not just team, but creative teams. So uh, really having like a sense of how a group forms, uh, how you know people can be complementary to each other and uh, with these differences can really come up with very creative and unique solutions and mm -hmm. maybe as a result making very unique experiences and uh, this is this form uh, then organically to my why and why that i think also align with uh, voodoo's direction when um, i talked to them that was a vision i had for myself Okay, after review, if there's nothing lining up, what would I do? And this is really what I want to do. Create really a studio where there's a focus on culture and people to create really unique products in the market that I believe with a, with a difference in diversity you can have in the team, you can create also very different products. Uh, and I believe a lot in that. And when I see at the market and compare gaming to, I don't know, um, movies, music, I think there's still a lot to uncover. There are many, many ways of interpreting games as a form of art, um, product of uh, consumption, entertainment. And uh, I want to be part of it to try to, try to discover you know, new experiences, create these ones for an, a growing audience. And uh, what we call gamer today, I think will not make much sense in the future where mm -hmm. it's like saying there's a music listener and a watcher. I mean, everyone would play game eventually just in different forms. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any tips for people that are, and this could be in the form of books or articles or things they should do, but you know, let's say I, I want to find my why, like what's a good process for me to go about doing that? Um, so I, I would say more as a, 
as more as inspiration, at least for me, of uh, books before I started to think more about, about it. So, of course, there's Simon Sinek. We will start with why more about the principle. But I really liked, uh, for example, Ray Dalio's book about uh, called Principle. I think really like... Uh, the series of uh, founders, entrepreneurs who really think about their principles of life. Mm -hmm. uh, Charlie Munger, for example, so is very inspirational uh, for me to see how he he thinks <laughs> about the mental models and principles that drives him to make decision in investment. And uh, my advice would be to spend as much time journaling on uh, you know yourself, reflecting on yourself, understanding yourself. What drives you? What's what have you learned from the past experience? Uh, something I do as a as a yearly routine, I do um, a self-offering uh, journaling. So I, I look at my year, I uh, look at what I've learned, um, the things that I wanted to do, I didn't do, the things I didn't think I wanted to do that I did, <laughs> that I liked. And then I look at it, you know, uh, retrospectively, uh, it year after year to see what is forming, what is consistent, and start to actually frame really what where are my values as a person. Mm -hmm. You know, is it, why is it in people? What is it about the people? What is it in the creation of new product? Um, and by understanding this value about yourself, there's an exercise you can do as well by, okay, let's say, for example, I have a value that is um, into intellectual humility. Like really, I, I am myself as uh, an immigrant uh, in France, born as an immigrant. I value a lot differences of people. You know, this is part of me and I see beauty in this. I see a lot of value and we, we are a more multicultural world. So this is a personal mission for me to showcase all the talents of the world, have uh, a very colorful mix of people to prove that there is something exceptional that can be created out of this because it is also related to my own story. So I think everyone has their own story also as entrepreneurs and founders. And uh, we talk often about authenticity, you know, like authentic leaders. The way you can be, be the most authentic about, about this is to understand and know yourself over time. So that is, I think, I would, I would give you advice to all the founders, like the more, the better they know themselves. And the more vision they have and focus to the direction that makes sense to them. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So assuming I can find this for myself, how would I go about sharing that and getting others, you know, on the team on board with my why? Like, how do I, you know, best align everyone in that, that same thing? How do you communicate that and keep the team focused on those goals? So something I did as well during this uh, the time of transition between before joining Voodoo, I wrote down all my principles. Like really, I made like a manifesto for myself, you know, of and I call it uh, my handbook. My it's my team handbook. Uh, I even uh, like did a wordplay with it. Uh, um, DNA. Uh, handbook so do not assume because I wanted uh, to write it for myself but also um, share it with future uh, people that would uh, join me so I took some time to really go through I don't know how do we make decision in the team what is my vision of how we should debate uh, what do we use to make a decision do we use quantitative, quantitative qualitative data should we debate before making a decision how do we approach meetings so I have very also uh, specific rules about how we approach meetings, if we make meetings. And so you have a lot of lines there. And uh, that is a document I, I, um, I made uh, to share, for example, during hiring process, like to talk about the culture. So people know about it from the early, very early process. So from hiring, interviewing, onboarding and then following up, integrating, coaching, developing. So it follows people throughout the whole, I would say, funnel of integration in the team. And even today, uh, I have a system where I have a team post survey uh, on a monthly basis and where there are some questions to follow up. Do you understand the team mission? Do you understand the team value? Do you buy into these values? And when I see where the trends are going month by month, so I see sometimes it's high and then people forget months pass, I need to remind about it and it's high again. So it's how it is. You need mm. to talk about it. You need to share. You need to have concrete uh, situation where you can actually use more like the, the values, the mission, like, hey, we cannot do this because, because this is what 
we said we would be doing when we started. And this is really what where we want to go. And also reminding this in all the discussion. So it's kind of like the, the process of, you know, every time something comes up, you kind of bring it back to your, your core basis. And over time, people just become accustomed to doing that themselves yes. as well, kind of a thing. That's yes. great. So something you said a little bit earlier was just about, um, you know, starting with your why, but then after that kind of comes the team. And so I know that gaming is, you know, it's, it's a really hit driven, uh, you know, industry, uh, where I would say many folks argued that just having that IP or that game is more valuable than a team. So, you know, why do you feel like the team is more important than just focusing on the, the game first or whatnot? I think it really depends on how far you look. Uh, so I like to think of a time window. Um, I would say if you think really short term, like uh, you think you will have a quick win or something like <laughs> on the first try <laughs> will succeed, which which is, I would say, uh, a valid uh, a valid belief. Uh, then, of course, uh, the question of the people, the team uh, is maybe less relevant. But my, in my vision, uh, Games development is a is a long term game. It is a very long term game, and your first game, your second game, your fifth game, they won't remain uh, before you, after you, you know. <laughs> so, and what remains is really the people, because in the end, if there are no people, there are no games. So, in, you don't want to end up in a situation where you don't take care of your people and you are burning out for your first game. It doesn't work, and then you want to try the second. <laughs> No one wants to stay here because they are traumatized from the first game development that uh, happened in terrible condition. So uh, in the end, and the people, so I think we, we talk a lot about, okay, games as also the driver, but it assumes as well that one person or a few people have really a good idea of what to do, where to go. And, and this is a very, I would say, strong belief in a market like this where it's very competitive and you don't always know what works where actually people can come up sometime with better and smarter solutions when they are really integrated in the team the culture of a mission and it's more about finding out over time for different trials what is the better way to approach this and instead of assuming we will get it right on the first trial maybe we won't get it on the first, but eventually after, I don't know, two, three, five, we will get there because we get better. Mm. So a, a team I see is really like there's a stage where it's exponential. All the learnings you get, you work really well together. Uh, you understand really well each other and all the learnings you get, it's like a flywheel, you know, like the, the concept of a flywheel. Everything yep. you get goes faster, faster and, and bigger. And then you, you will hit right eventually. So... Mm. This is where my belief is in also the investment in the team and people. It takes time to form a team just to be a team. So you don't want to do this over and over again. And if you have the right people, the right team investing in this team, eventually they get there and you need to be patient. That's great. I think in one of your previous, uh, it was like a deconstructor of fun article, uh, you mentioned, and this was early on at Voodoo, you were looking to kind of build your dream team. Um, what exactly did your dream team look like? So uh, here again, and I can say really, um, it's been a year, like almost working with this team and it's uh, has passed also my expectation. Uh, it's really interesting when I, I also read back the articles, like, I was, I was with very few people at that time and it was all very theoretical based on my vision. Uh, and I can say a year after that it is really the, at least for me, the dream team I've built. And what I mean by that is really, it comes down really to trust. Um, because once again, I said uh, there will be a lot of hurdles during development. And I would say these days it's with COVID uh, working from home, there's a lot of... Um, um, distrust, uh, anxiety, you know, from uh, for people because we are all isolated, and it's uh, really hard to expect from us as well to create um, uh, something demanding like a new game, ambitious target in mm -hmm. these circumstances. And but when there's trust, a team can adapt. They can listen. They can understand. And 
in the end, it's not so much for me to come up with a solution, but deliver the news, deliver what we need to do, deliver you know the expectation. And with the trust, everybody is figuring, uh, figuring it out. They care about the game. They care about what they do. They care as professionals and they care about each other. And it's amazing to work with a team like that because I don't have to worry so much about the how. Uh, as long as I take care, you know, of uh, why and where we're going, basically. Yeah, that's great. So what was your approach to hiring? Like, how did you find these great people and, and get them on board? And and I don't know, I, I assume with kind of the voodoo backing, you guys were able to pay market salaries or did you have like a strict budget? Because I know sometimes with startups, you know, you you don't have enough funding to quite pay them market salary. So you have to get creative on how you get those people on board. What's your, what's your approach to sal- for hiring, I guess, you know, if I was to rephrase the question. Yeah. And uh, that was a challenge at the beginning, uh, when I started, uh, a, a year ago, because, uh, Voodoo was not known for casual games. So it was not like, uh, we've, uh, coming, like saying, Hey, uh, coming from Voodoo, it was necessarily the best appealing uh, offer, at least to start uh, to get into casual. So there was more the image of hyper-casual games. And um, in, a, in the hiring also team internally, I was uh, it was more entrepreneurial. So I had to go source myself a lot. So to start, I actually looked more into the network. And I think the network, this is where I see I value it even more now. Uh, it's something you build, you know, over time. And I, I, I couldn't have built a network uh, from the moment I knew I needed people, right? So it's something I have built over the years, more like like as a practice. But when actually, when you are visible then to your network and say, hey, look, I am building this, super open. I'm looking for people to join for that uh, new venture. Who's in? Then people talk to each other and a lot of people came back to me from my network and say, hey, I have that person I would recommend to you. And uh, some of them joined this way, some were from my personal network. Um, some were I saw that I sourced directly, so I had to take the time to actually see who could be a good fit from the profile or if they were uh, visible publicly and really take the time to write and explain what I was doing. So that was the most effective way of hiring where you as a leader, you put yourself out there and don't have intermediary, you know, that uh, speak for you. Because in the end, you ask people to come with you on a very risky venture where there's nothing, we start from zero. And mm-hmm. for them to take the risk as well, they need to know who will be on the boat, you know, with them. So uh, that has helped a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, network in general, and and uh, the reason also why I, I wrote the article was to be even uh, more visible. What were my values, my mission, so people could make their own decision already and see, okay, that resonates with me. I really want to work in this environment. I will contact Sophie, or if not, then not. You know, yeah. and uh, but yeah, it, it's a it's a tough one, uh, and. Uh, as it turned out, more personal network works better than any other, <laughs> uh, you know, external hiring, uh, as as it was for me. Yeah. Are there certain things that you look for in a resume or cover letter that are either oh this is super positive or this is super negative that you've learned over the years? I was looking quite a lot uh, in the CV, especially into the names of the company, um, but I didn't want to just do that because in the end, I believe talents can come from anywhere. Um, so I have tried. So it was a, a lot of trial and error during the hiring. I was very open at the beginning, you know, like very open in the funeral. And I was testing a lot of candidates coming from different places, different backgrounds, different experiences, different company. And over time, I actually uh, iterated on the approach to find out what was working more for us, for me, for what we were doing. So I don't have a generic rule about uh, this. I would say in general, what actually looks uh, bad to me is when uh, there are some mistakes that you see it's a letter that was meant to send <laughs> to another company and I have a like, hello, company Z. It's like, uh, wow, I, I don't get it. So the person was just like sending a mass, you know, application. Mm-hmm. Um, when people talk a lot about uh, what the company can bring to them instead of what they can also bring, what, what you know, what... Uh, what is it about them? So not having the empathy to 
understand like who's reading in the end the letter and what is important for me to read. So I, I actually like to, to get a sense of the personality of the people through the letter. Some take really the effort to write, to talk about uh, them, and uh, some is really standard and a template, and you can see that as well, which is not very uh, yeah, convincing to me. Yeah. When you're doing an interview with a person, are their answers to your questions more important, or do you take a lot into like the questions and the thoroughness that they're asking about like you and the company? It's a, it's a good point. I think I would say it's 50, 50. So usually I like to, I like to divide the interview time where I, I want to leave the time also for the person to talk, ask questions and so on. I have my regular questions that are more a way also to compare candidates uh, fairly. So I don't have questions that go more in one direction for one candidate and the other. So I follow a certain structure of questionnaire. And uh, after that, I actually look a lot at the questions that people ask. And it's really interesting because when they have the time to talk, there will be a lot of questions uh, around the process, for example. So I understand uh, like the person might be really into the process to the point that sometimes they are worried about it, you know. So then, <laughs> then I can write down like, okay, there's a need of security. Is this person... Uh, you know, uh, right for us because one day we will do one process, but the other day we will do different because we are <laughs> testing our ways these days, you know. Some, uh, some people I had also uh, interviewed recently were asking everything but uh, about the job, more uh, about, uh, I don't know, the holidays. <laughs> On the very first interview, how will be the holidays or, uh, you know, the perks? And it, it's a bit odd to me to have this focus from the beginning. So this is, you can see a lot by listening, actually, in the interview. For me, that's the very interesting part and the question uh, that uh, people uh, ask. Yeah, that's really interesting. So when you're talking to candidates, obviously this, you know, vision cultural type fit is also important. But, you know, when, when we're talking about games and creative teams, obviously like you wouldn't want to hire me as an artist because all I could give you is like a mangled stick figure. So like, how, how do you weight, you know, technical ability along with the cultural visual type stuff, vision? Yeah, it's a, it's a hard balance. And uh, I don't have a clear number, like uh, in percentage, sometimes I ask myself like, yeah, okay, it's 50-50, maybe sometimes 60-40, more on the uh, soft skills part. I would I would comment more on the, as a starting uh, studio, it is important that you have a minimum of technical ability, especially if you it's your first artist, developer, or designer. However, I think there's no compromise to be done uh, on the cultural uh, compatibility. I prefer to say compatibility than uh, fit or match because there, there's, in the end, there's not a culture to fit in. It's more a culture to contribute to. And so there are certain behaviors that are compatible with it. Uh, and there are certain behaviors that are incompatible with the culture we have in our team. Uh, mm -hmm. For example, if you are a very solo careerist and you, you want really to grow, uh, get to titles, recognition, and you can feel that in a very fast in discussion, this is not the place I'm building uh, here because uh, that's not why we exist. I'm, I'm not building a, another company in the company where we'll be 100 people and a lot of heads, but it really is very uh, focused on the craft, the product, the game. Mm -hmm. So I need people actually who are really passionate about the craft and the product. Uh, so this, for example, is just for me a deal breaker because not because uh, not because the person has a bad motivation. They are the just motivation don't match with what we will offer in how we will grow as a team in the studio. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Has any of your process or the way that you guys work together changed with COVID, going more remote? Yes, yes, a lot, and uh, I think we are still uh, learning uh, every every week. Um, so when I built the studio, I was planning for it that we would be sitting all together. We have a lot of time together. I had a lot, a lot of idea, a plan, and it was all uh, it all collapsed uh, with uh, COVID in March, <laughs> where where my team actually formed uh, during March. 
and we had to adapt very quickly. So it was very tough, actually, because none of us really know each other like at all. We started all together and a very ambitious target to begin with. But we found a way over time. So practices we started to do uh, from the very early months were... Um, a ritual. So we do very uh, rigorously a retrospective every week. Um, when we are on site, it's quite intense every week, but it, it makes a lot of sense remote because that was our main time of connection, team time at the end of the week to really look at what uh, was going well, also give praise to each other. So we, we use a um, tool called, uh, used to call fun ritual, it's now easy ritual. And we look at what went well and so on. And in the what went well, it's really the time where everyone gives a lot of praise to each other. And that has formed the team week to week where we say like, hey, awesome job on this one, or the art was wow. And it, it's really sweet to see the team giving praise each other publicly you know during this time so we did that on a weekly basis we don't have a stand-up so we remove that completely because uh, in the end it, it was not um i don't know it was not fitting fitting with the routine of the remote work or at least not for us and we have other ways to give update to each other we have uh, a calendar time booked uh, that is called lunch break from noon to two <laughs> so we don't book any meeting there and it was also the learning at the beginning. We were like having meetings with no break and so on. And now we have a meeting actually scheduled <laughs> that is lunchtime. So, and it's actually very good because then we keep the discipline of not, you know, planning anything during this break to make sure people also have a proper break. Mm. We use Discord. So, uh, as a, instead of Slack, actually, we, we use Discord to replicate a bit what you would have when you are in, office, in an office and, you know, um, just uh, come by the desk of someone and like, hey, I wanted to ask you about this or you have five minutes. And so people are in their Discord rooms the whole day. <laughs> and uh, that means they're available, like they're uh, virtually at their desk. Mm. And so you can just jump in the room and, and <laughs> you know, and start to talk to your person like, hey, I'm in your room. Can we have five minutes to talk? <laughs> <laughs> so that, that is the way as well it, it created more um, a simulation of office life although we are not sitting together so that are some tips i think uh, uh work well for us and if that can you know inspire other teams to uh, go to this direction yeah that's pretty cool i haven't heard of the discord one before we might have to, to steal that mm -hmm. one try it out ourselves yeah. I, I like that a lot um one thing you said with your your team looping back a little bit was just about trust. So um, how do you foster, you know, kind of that culture of, I want to say psychological safety at your studio that allows you to increase the trust um, so that they, you know, feel safe sharing thoughts and opinions, because I know at a lot of companies, especially when you're newer, it's just like, oh, if I ask this question, people are going to think I'm dumb. Or if I say this thing and it ends up not being, you know, the option that's picked, like people are going to think less of me or whatnot. Like, how did you kind of foster that culture of, of trust and openness and willingness? Because I think once you get those creative juices going and people aren't afraid, you just get so much better output from everything. I fully agree. It's uh, also... Uh a hard one to, um, to to create in the sense like you can engineer trust. It's a, you know it's a it's a it's a human connection. And uh, people often ask me like how how do you make trust? It's like it's you know it's not if if we had a playbook for this we would all do this I guess. Um, but it takes time and experience, and uh, I believe in system. You know, an environment that uh, supports uh, more trust and safety over time. And experience, and one one thing that uh, uh, we have a lot in our team, despite the, the distance, is um, creating an environment of openness where people share feedback regularly, publicly, privately, anonymously, where they get into the practice of giving feedback, and nothing bad will happen. So, of course, they need to get over a step of giving feedback, but by seeing their peer doing so, so it creates a culture of feedback. We have, for example, like the ritual where we we actually see uh, really sometimes uh, hard comments of what we didn't do so well in the week and we try to improve our process. Um, I have a typical survey system where I send once a month. It's anonymous and I want to look at the trend in the team of how 
do they understand what we're doing? Do they feel even safe? Do you give feedback to me or, you know, feedback mm -hmm. to other leads in the team? And, and that gives them the space while being protected to actually give feedback in the habit of nothing bad will happen. I will not come, uh, you know, after this and say, <laughs> who wrote this? So I think it's getting into the practice of giving feedback. We have uh, Emma as well. So on the product side where uh, me and the product manager, we are available for the team. They have any questions about, I don't know, what's happening with the stakeholders, where the company is going, etc. So that builds first uh, an environment of transparency and uh, feedback. Mm -hmm. And uh, other experiences that help a lot to create the trust is really, um, it's really time and experience, but in one-on-one, -on -one, for example, I have one-on-one -on -one with uh, everyone in the team. It's really about showing that you care. I know it sounds uh, simple, but actually a real one-on-one, -on -one, when you show that you care, you listen to the people. You don't use this time to, oh, we need to work on this, this goal, and this goal, and this goal. Actually, you, you, you are interested in how the people are feeling and you truly care. So you listen and, uh, and acting as you truly care or acting to care for, so the person trusts you is a very different behavior and people can see it. So I, I, would, I would say for all the leaders out there who want to create trust, is really ask yourself, how much do you care about your people? Are you interested in them, how they feel in the in their life? And, you know, how, how are they doing, basically? And if you don't, maybe you are not in the right position for this. But if you do, ask yourself, are you doing the right thing to show really that you care? And there's the power of really listening and being present. But doesn't mean anything else than acting, you know, and compensating to build the trust especially as a, as a lead of a team. Yeah, that's great. Um, uh, yeah, and I had one last. Of, oh, yeah. Go on. Uh, more on the, which is less conventional. Um, but I think also we, uh, um, I actually don't know so much how other leads see this, but I, I see benefit on showing yourself, especially maybe this is more of a modern type of leadership where everyone has their... Uh, public face as a as a professional i mean i i have the title as a boss uh, head or whatever and and that's how people see me but i think it's important so people can see me who am i what i value in life when i don't have that label as a boss as their boss so they can relate to me and um, in uh, when we have social events i don't try to behave in a certain way where I'm, I'm just myself, you know, we are in a team, we are just in different roles, different responsibility, but we are really all fighting for the same thing. And uh, there's a fear sometimes of being too close to people, showing too much. I don't think it's, it's a bad thing to show a little bit of yourself, of your, you know, your personal, your inner self to others. And this is how you build trust because they see who they're dealing with and not just the politician uh, that they're talking to. And that's a yeah. very important point. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I don't know that I've called out right now, but Sophie, you have a great blog. I, I really enjoy reading the stuff on it. So we'll, we'll definitely post a link on there. But I think something that you wrote there was about cognitive diversity. Um, so could you tell us like, what is cognitive diversity and why is that important on a game team? Yes, and I prefer to really use um, cognitive diversity because these days we talk a lot about diversity, but it's a broad uh, term to talk about a lot of things and maybe nothing. So for me, cognitive diversity is really different ways of thinking and seeing the world and interpreting, interpreting data, interacting with others. So I see the world really colorful and individuals very, you know, uh, colorful. And especially in the context when um, in a very competitive market like games, okay, you can create something, uh, something by copying, improving what already exists and you can get away with it. But we see the big case of success there. There's some creative solution. There's some innovation around it, like very focused innovation. And I believe that is also the result of when you have really a group of different thinkers inside the team have different point of view, different expertise, uh, different things, you know, they want to fight for inside the product and they are all valid. And having all of that together, this is where you push for the best solutions and uh, the most creative solution and sometimes unique, you know, results. And I have uh, experienced that in my previous team I, I built at Rovio. 
for the game we had, uh, had in soft launch. And I can definitely tell from the team I have built now that we have a game now in soft launch and it looks like no other, other games I have made at all in my career. And I don't think I could have made this game either at Rovio or Wuga. I worked before because this team is very different. Uh, we are in a different context, but we are so different and also uh, complement each other that the result is unique. And it's uh, really, uh, it's amazing to watch. I'm uh, like, I'm, I'm surprised, uh, you know, every, every week when I see a new build and like, ah, what happened? Because I'm really not close to, you know, the details and I shouldn't. But when I see how they own the game, the product, the, the details, how, what they come up with, I'm amazed now. That's fantastic. So let's switch gears and we're going to talk about some hard subjects now. So obviously you've got a, a soft launch game out there, but typically the first game that a team releases uh, seems to end in a failure. So how do you prepare your team for their first, second, third game failing? You know, how do you prepare for that failure so that you guys can keep working on the next team or next game, I should say? So, uh, I think it's important to be super honest and humble about it from the beginning. I mean, of course, uh, there's a temptation to motivate the team and say, we will succeed because we are better. We are just, you know, good and we want to believe in it. Setting the expectation right that, okay, talking or normalizing the what after plan, you know? So if it doesn't work out, like what, what are we going to do next? So I usually give also the long-term picture for a team that is not just this first game. What are we going to do over one, two, three years? So basically they can think of the things they are building now. Probably they will have to use it and repeat it in the future game. So then everyone also thinks from the very beginning, not in a one-time shot and burning out basically for that one game, but really a building system, robust system and a flexible system that we know if this is not this game, we can take some pieces of it and remake a new game. And the game we have already in soft launch, I had some team members telling me, oh, if this doesn't work out, I have an idea of these pieces we can already put together and make a game. It's like, but we, are, we didn't even kill it yet. Like, you know, we are just ready. So, And then it becomes normal for them where there's not the attachment of this particular launch. But in the end, it's the, it's the motivation of constant progress. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, trying once we learn. And I can tell you actually from the game we have in soft launch, we had our really first uh, failure where we we had a very early test and our KPI were not at the level we wanted. And uh, this is where we actually started to see, okay, maybe will we, will we not continue? And we had to make drastic changes, really look at it like almost like a new game, revisit everything to... Mm-hmm try a second time and I think this is how I see new game or on the same game you pivot and you have to do that all the time during development so um, and once you explain you know to your team I like to talk about the anti-fragility of teams where I show them that mental model when uh, we start to work together but in the end our journey will look like this you know (laughs) like waves and we are just at the beginning of this where we had our two free waves but there will be 10 more until we get eventually to what we call our hit yeah so they are ready and they see this is just the beginning that's great How does your team approach failures in a way to maximize learning? Is it just being able to take out those pieces or are there other things that you've kind of designed such that, you know, even if we do fail on this game, we're going to learn X, Y, Z, which will allow us to move forward on the next game. So postmortem and uh, retrospective, I think are the most important thing to do when, uh, you know, we're working on your process, forming as a new studio and Finally, it's the type of process that we forget when we are in a rush and trying to build the next thing or find the next solution. But in the end, this is where the time is best spent, I believe, especially after you have done a few trials, to really 
take a step back for any craft and look at, okay, what went wrong, what, what we had as, as assumptions, and what are actually the learnings and the new beliefs to incorporate this new learning in the next thing. So we take actually really the time, and I'm the one driving this in the studio to really take the time to reflect, do a postmortem. We have a, a quarterly review. I have a retrospective of the whole studio I will do at the end of the year. So we really look at, we reflect on ourselves, you know, like you reflect on yourself as a person, as a studio, we reflect on ourselves as a team quite often. And that's how we get better. That's great. How can you tell if an employee isn't a good fit? Like what's your process for approaching firing? It is uh, not, uh, it's not straightforward where you, uh, you know, you, one day you say, oh, this is not working. I mean, I probably went through these thoughts with everyone at least once in the team, because sometimes you have conflicts and you, it's, you know, boiling. And so you cannot trust your emotions just because you feel like it, that it's uh, a reality. But one thing I can say that is a good metric I use to start to ask myself really the question is um, how much conflicts do we have? over a long uh, period of time. Because what, uh, w- uh, what it means when we have a lot of conflicts at least with the uh, same person or uh, a person has conflicts with others and it, it's ongoing for a while, there's misalignment. And uh, this, despite the discussion, we cannot actually agree or align. And what's behind is actually there's either uh, a misfit of motivations so that can happen or capabilities for the job or I don't know, something else, misunderstanding, miscommunication, coaching. So there are many ways to then approach the situation where we talk with a person. Um, but uh, for me, the way I think about it is as the lead of the team, my time and energy is limited and it's actually precious uh, it's really directed to motivate, uh, drive uh, the team, the product. And if my energy, 50% of my energy is spent in solving a conflict with that person, this already is a sign that there is something to question here. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So talking about kind of a, another type of employee that can come into an organization, which I kind of call a passenger who maybe isn't doing really poorly, but they aren't really doing that well either. You know, what's your recommendation on what to do with passengers? And do you ever use a question, you know, if I could do this all over again, would I hire person X for this position? So as a passenger to also be clear of what we're talking about here, I would say it's a person that has uh, a low output. So average output, but also have a low investment, personal investment, uh, what I call uh, leadership capital. So my personal investment to coach and develop or to uh, fix. So, and as I see the evolution in a team, uh, it's not conscious when you hire someone that you say, oh, that might, that person might be a passenger. I think it's more a stage where I've seen people. So I use also a, a matrix um, of people who uh, go in different phases, depending on the stage of growth also of the studio and the team. And some people can be passenger because they are on a new assignment. They don't understand maybe what they're supposed to do now, or there's someone new in the team, I don't know, among developer or artist, and they lose a bit their goal because there's a new dynamic. So they can be new factors that make a person passenger Well, before they were, uh, you know, a rising star, a high performer. So uh, I would first start to inquire and with the person, what is going on here? Is it a motivation thing? Is it a capability thing? And how do we address it? And I I like to always, um, as a lead, first give the ownership on my end where it's not the person's fault. It is for me to actually act on this and help on this and help the person. So making a proper development uh, plan with the person, I don't know, three to six months, uh, these are the outcomes expected for your job. Let's follow up on this over three months, talk about it and see where this goes. And then you can start actually either make the conclusion over this uh, new trial period if you should part ways or, you know, it was just uh, misunderstanding, misalignment, you needed just some coaching, you know, or support. Yeah, definitely. That's really great advice. Um, 
So you, you talked a little bit about coaching, um, but how can leaders build a team of leaders at their organization and have that culture of coaching so that, you know, your team is pushing these new builds without you having to like be involved in every little nitpicky thing where they're kind of the ones that are leading the project themselves. Yeah. And I believe really eventually as a team, we are a small team really as everyone is at the level, an entrepreneur, like really the leader of their craft. So uh, I don't consider myself to be uh, the person that is holding everything of leadership for the rest of the team. And I see a lot more value in developing other uh, more experienced senior people who really have more of a sensibility for that as leads because then they can also pass on their leading skills, coaching uh, others to also be leaders in their own uh, work and the craft. And uh, I don't, for me, a lead is really not so much about the title, it's about the attitude, you know, how you own what you do, uh, being proactive in finding solutions, um, feeling responsible of what you do and not just in your little bubble, but everything related to the delivery of a game, the quality of the game. So a system of coach, I like to think of it like as I'm responsible for the system of leaders and coaching who also uh, from leads, you know, the coach over leads, future leads and so on. I love that. That is fantastic. Well, Sophie, I know we're just about out of time here. So I think we'll go ahead and do my last unofficial question, which is if you had one tip or trick for helping to improve retention in games, what would that be? It's a very tough one. If only I knew it's a magic formula. I would say uh, maybe not to fix retention, but to get good insights of what could help you improve retention is gathering a maximum of qualitative and quantitative insights. So know your players, know how they interact with your game, uh, how they behave in your game and why. What do they value and why? What are the friction points? And uh, match this with uh, quantitative data, your analytics, Mm -hmm. your funeral, uh, your D1, if really uh, playtime and so on, and make the right assumptions. So you narrow down the number of assumptions of what could help retention instead of having just from a data point of view, you know, like 100 assumptions. (laughs) So I I found that like mixing really the two types of data you usually hit right how to improve the game because you understand really the product you're making. That's amazing. I, I love that. Yeah. Maybe at, at some point we'll have to do another one where we just dive more into user research and how that can actually be applied to games and stuff, because I feel like it's just kind of in our, in, in its infancy here of how do we actually tie those user intentions and expectations to the data and stuff that they're actually using. So mm-hmm. I, I love that. Cool. Well, Sophie, this has been fantastic. Uh, Really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. Um, And I look forward to sharing this with everyone uh, that's looking to build a new studio or or really level up their their game team. So thank you for being on. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Bye. (laughs)